we're going to lean in today to number part three of the wish list. And I want to talk about being careful in the trades we make. You know, we live in a culture today where we don't trade a lot in America. We don't, you walk into a store and you buy something, you pay for it. You either whip out that old dirty stuff called cash or you get out your iPhone and you tap it on the thing. However you do it, you, we pay for things. But a lot of cultures trade for things. And there's an assessed value of what one person has, an assessed value of what another person has. And if they're, if they're willing and both of them agree, they can trade each other and, and feel okay with what they traded each other with, right? It's called bartering or trading. or uh, And that's kind of a lost art in the United States. We don't do it a lot anymore. I'm going to talk to you about this morning about a really bad trade. Anybody ever made a really bad trade? My fear with our culture today is that we are getting ingrained to make bad trades. That is just part of the part of the way the culture works when something, um, when something doesn't seem to be working correctly, we don't fix anything anymore. We just get rid of it, trade it in for something else. We're going to talk about that today. Genesis chapter 25, we're going to start in verse 19. We're going to read all the way back. This is way, way back. Abraham's son, Isaac. We're going to read about him and his sons for a moment. So why don't you stand to your feet one more time in honor of reading the word. Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 19. Say amen if you're ready. That's pretty good. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's sons. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padaram sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? Any pregnant women ever ask that question? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red and all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore, when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Look at your neighbor and say, I knew you had a favorite. Come on, parents. You know we try to fake it like we don't. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. 
Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we pray that it would transform our minds this morning. Lord, give us insight into how how you work and what you have planned for us. Lord, we pray that we'll be able to value the things you've put in us, that you've given to us. We thank you for this moment we're able to be together and lean into your presence. We pray you change us because of it. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. You may be seated. All right, if you're reading the beginning of chapter 25, it may seem like Abraham is dead at this point in time, but he's not. Chapter 25 starts out with kind of the fact that Abraham dies, and here's some stuff that he did, but but you have to... You have to understand Abraham, when, when Isaac got married to Rebekah, he was 40 years old, Abraham was still alive at that time. Actually, Abraham was alive to see his grandsons born. But there's an important thing that chapter 25 Genesis records is that once the two twins were born, once Esau and Jacob were born to Isaac, at the beginning of chapter 25, you see Abraham working to protect them from all of his other children. So if you go back, Abraham's the original patriarch. Abraham's the guy God made a covenant with and said, I'll make your, I'll make your descendants as numerous as sands on the shore. The, I, I'm, I'm going to bless you. The trouble was Abraham and his wife Sarah were barren. They, they didn't have any kids. And, and the Bible says that Abraham's wife Sarah was past the age of childbirth. I don't mean 50. I mean past the age of childbirth. Matter of fact, God would come to them and say, hey, you're going to have a son. And she laughed at the prospect of having a child. Just laughed about it. So she becomes pregnant, just like God promised, and, and they, they have a son named Isaac. Now, if you go back and read that story, you realize that they, that they got a little out of hand with, with God's plan. And, and Abraham ended up having a baby by their by their servant girl, and, and it, was, it just complicated the whole thing, the, the Ishmael and Isaac feud. So you got that thing going. But now Sarah's dead, and Abraham's married another woman, and he keeps having kids. So now there's a lot of kids in the circumstance, and he is, he is, orchestrating things so that his blessing goes down through the lineage of Isaac. So when you read at the beginning of chapter 25, you see him do this thing. You see him give gifts to all his kids and then send them away. Don't you wish it was that easy? He gives gifts to all his kids and he sends them away to get them as far away from Isaac as possible because he wants Isaac and his family to have, to, to be the, they're the chosen ones. So Isaac, at 40 years old, marries Rebekah, and shockingly, the same thing happens with them. She can't get pregnant. And so they pray to the Lord, and finally she becomes pregnant. 
Now, in case you're wondering, they didn't have any ultrasounds back then. They didn't go for wellness checkups. So this woman becomes pregnant, and all of a sudden, there's a WWE wrestling match in her womb. And she's looking around going, dear God, I have no idea what's going on. So at the beginning of what we just read, it says she went to inquire of the Lord. Now think about this. There's no doctors. There's no, there's no way you can figure it out. There's no ultrasounds. And so, and so all of a sudden, something's happening in her womb that she doesn't understand. So she goes to inquire. Now, now we, they didn't have the term prophet at that point in time, but commentators believe that that she probably went, she could have went to somebody called an oracle and said, hey, like we got to inquire of God to figure out what's happening in here. It's not right. Whatever is going on is not what I've seen. So she goes and it says, there's two nations at war within you. Ladies, I can imagine your first ultrasound when you get pregnant and the doctor comes in and says, I've got good news. There's two nations at war within you. So there's two nations at war within you and there's gonna, it's not going to be good. And the older one will serve the younger one. Can you imagine going home after that? Your husband saying, hey, how'd it go? Well, I've got news for you. We're going to have two nations. Isaac is 60 years old when the boys are born. And it's kind of a seems like a dramatic birth. Esau comes out first, covered in hair. I don't know if I was disappointing or they were happy. Covered in hair, red, and when he gets out, they see the hand of Jacob clutching his heel. So they name these kids as soon as they come out. And you get a little backstory of and how they grew up. Esau had a tendency of hunting and he was geared towards going out and he's a woodsman. He's going to go out and hunt and kill and eat. And he would bring some of that back evidently to his father and his father just loved it, you know. That's what men do. Jacob, on the other hand, seemed to be more of a, more of a camp guy. Didn't like going out. He stayed around the camp. Doesn't mean that he necessarily stayed in the house all the time, but, but he wasn't an adventurer. He wasn't a hunter. And so his, his mom, Rebecca, just took to him. And you see a picture of them kind of growing up in this environment, and then, and then we get this window into a situation where where Jacob has some stew, some food, and Esau's been out hunting all day, famished, and I don't know how long, maybe, maybe, maybe for days, weeks, I don't know how long he's been out, but evidently when he comes back, it's, he's exhausted. Now, this doesn't necessarily happen at the house. Jacob could have been out at a spike camp where they took, took animals out to, to graze, and so wherever it happens, he's got some lentil stew, and Esau comes back, and the conversation just to me seems weird. It happens really quick. He says, um, give me some of that food. I'm exhausted. 
And Jacob says, okay, sell me your birthright. Now let's talk about birthrights for a second because we don't have those uh, in our culture anymore. Uh, if, if, you're, if you have siblings, like I have a brother, it's just expected that, you know, when mom and dad pass and leave us some stuff, we're going to split it. Every, that, that's how it typically works, right? I mean, it gets really bad when, when one family member gets more than the others. It, trust me, it gets bad. But back then what would happen is the firstborn, any firstborns in the house? Raise your hand if you're a firstborn. Look at everyone else and say, we are better than you. We are better than you by definition of being born first. Okay, what would happen with the firstborn? Let's say there, was, let's say there were 12 kids. This is 12 kids. Well, what happened is they would split the inheritance up 13 ways. And they would give the firstborn two pieces and the rest of them one. Everybody understand how that works? So if there's two of you, you split it up three ways and the firstborn gets two-thirds and the secondborn, ha, gets a third. Now, this wasn't just like, we're going to hand you all the money and then you go to Vegas. That's not what, the, what happened here. What happened was the firstborn was also responsible for all the, all the taking care of the family. So as the parents aged, the firstborn would then have to stay around and take care of the family. Now all the middle kids look at the firstborns and go, ha, 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 mom and dad are going to bleed you dry at the end of their life. <laughs> you see, so they did get more, but there was more responsibility that went with what they got. But it was a sign of blessing that was coming down through the firstborn child. It was an honor. They were, the, they were going to take over the reins of the family. So what happened is Esau is out hunting for however long he comes back and he says, I'm exhausted. Give me some of that food. And Jacob, sensing his opportunity to take advantage of the circumstance, says, sell me your birthright. To which Esau replies, what good is my birthright if I have nothing to eat? Mm. The statement kind of sums it up, the whole circumstance up right there. I want to talk to you today about trading things, about our mentality when we trade, what we trade, how we trade it. I am... as a pastor, I, I get a lot of phone calls when people are in their worst circumstances. Um, there's been a loss in the, there's been a death in the family. I, I'll get phone calls. Hey, you know, so-and-so died. And then, and then walking people through that. They're getting married. That's a lot. That's, that's tough. No. We'll leave that one out. Now it's a different circumstance. But death, financial crisis, sickness. Um, and as a pastor, we, we try to help people walk through those circumstances. Trouble in marriage, trouble with kids, um, all, all these things. Like what, my phone will ring. Chris, man, walking through this thing right now. I need some support. Don't know what to do. And I would say a very high percentage of the time, 
my advice will be to people, don't make any big decisions right now. Don't make any big decisions right now. Because what happens when we're under that much stress, our decision-making capacity tends to, tends to diminish a little bit. Our, our, we, we get into a place where we're under stress, we're exhausted, we're tired, we're grieving, we're hurt, we, we've, been, we've been wronged, all those things. Our, our kids won't listen. Hey, hey don't, if your kids aren't listening, if you're, if, you're in, if, you're, if you're in that circumstance right now, if your marriage, all this, just slow down. Don't make any big decisions because because by definition, we're not thinking right. Amen? So it'll be some of the first things I tell people. Hey, slow down a second. Slow down a second. Let's take a real, real picture of what's going on here. Slow down a little bit and and let's, let's kind of start walking through this thing. Let's get a new look at it. Because we tend to make bad decisions when we're tired. Amen? We tend to make really bad decisions when we're tired. We tend to make bad decisions when we're sick. We tend to make bad decisions when we're grieving. And what can happen is we can complicate our own circumstances. You can take a a bad circumstance and make it worse by making bad decisions in a bad circumstance. Say amen. So if you're in that circumstance right now, just push pause. It's not going to hurt you to just take a couple more days. It's not going to hurt you to think about it a little bit longer. It's not going to hurt you to get some advice. To call somebody. Say, hey, this is what's going on, and I need some clarity thinking through what's going on. Because I'm getting ready to kill somebody. The sad thing is, over the years, I've seen people compound their misery by making bad decisions on top of the misery they already have. It should have been an indication to Esau that this was not a good thing because he's making it while he's exhausted. He's willing to do a trade while he's exhausted. It's the first thing he says, I'm exhausted. All right, bro, settle down. You're not going to die in the next 10 minutes. Let's settle down and think this through. What are, you, what are you doing? And it says it again, I'm exhausted. My fear is with us a lot of times is we're trading things that we don't even understand when we're in the, in the mentality that we can't understand them. We're trading things in seasons of our lives where we should be doing no transactions. Like, you know how much pressure I'm under right now? Okay, Paul's all the buying and selling. It's like, you're going through a divorce. You don't need a sports car on top of that. Like, like let's, let's just pause things. I've seen people cash in their retirement to do things when they retire. And trust me, then when you're 80 and you get really tired, you wish you hadn't traded that thing in. So a lot of times what we do is we're, is we're going, oh, man, oh, man, I need to, I, I, I'm, this is so bad, this is so bad. I've got to make a decision. I've got to do something about it. And my word to you this morning is be patient. Wait a second. Get some counsel. 
get some godly advice. Some of those stressful times in Beth and I, in Mai's life, um, I figured out really quick, I better invite somebody else who's not an idiot. There is a prerequisite. I need to invite somebody else who's not in my boat to come look at my boat. Oh, can I, can I pause there for a second? Because here's what you do. If you're not careful, you invite them in the boat with you. You don't want that. But if your boat feels like it's sinking, you want somebody that knows something about boats that is not sinking. Amen? So somebody who can be separate and give an analysis of what's happening, give a good, give a good critical judgment about what's happening. And that typically means they're not in the boat with you drowning. It typically means they can step outside of the boat and they could go, hey, well, you know what? There's a big gaping hole in the side of it. I hate to be obvious, but what happens is we pull people in. We pull, like, we want them in the boat with us. We want them with us. We want them drowning with us. Oh, can't you feel my pain? Yeah, I feel it now. So we need to pause and stop and invite a critical, clear thinker in, a godly person into the circumstance to be able to stand outside of the circumstance, look into the circumstance, and give us wisdom. Amen? The Bible says there's wisdom in the counsel of many. Esau runs in, exhausted, impatient, suffering, whatever you want to call it. He says, I want what I want now, and I'm willing to trade you for it. He was tired. Here's what I find that I do, and I think most people do it. We do the most comparing when we're tired, when we're exhausted, when it's not going well in our own lives. Anybody else? It's not going well in our life. Maybe the marriage isn't going well. Maybe the kids, maybe the job, maybe all this stuff. And we're tired, exhausted. We don't know what to do. And what do we do? We veg on Facebook and Instagram and all those things. Only to compound what's going on. Because now we, we are not in the mental capacity to be able to handle all that stuff correctly. So now we look at what we have and we're comparing it to what somebody else wants to make it look like they have. And then we start comparing while we're tired. And that is the worst thing to do. It's like going to the grocery store while you're hungry. Every time I go to the grocery store while I'm hungry, I get Lucky Charms and Boston Cream Donuts. Why? I'm hungry. I'm not meal planning. I need food now. And I can eat a Boston Cream Donut on the way home. I can't eat a steak. So what you start doing is you start making immediate decisions to fix the immediate thing because you're tired. And I just, I just as, a, as somebody who cares about you, if you're in a circumstance right now, I just want to say, slow down a little bit. The worst thing you could do in the middle of your pain is try to compare it to somebody else. The worst thing you can do if your marriage is in trouble, compare it to somebody else's. The worst thing you can do if you're having trouble at work is just, to, is just to get all mad about it and then compare it to everybody else's great job. 
Because when we start comparing, when we're not in the right mindset, we make trades that aren't worth it. And we're going to find that out about Esau. You've got to have the right mindset. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, we read some of this last week. Paul said this, I count everything as loss because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So, so he said, I'm in the right mindset, so everything before is loss compared to knowing him. So was it difficult in Paul's circumstances at that moment we talked about last week? He's in prison in a Roman dungeon. Yes, it was extremely difficult. But he said, I'm not, I'm not going to get the mindset. I'm not going to let exhaustion cause me to trade my relationship with him. I'll count all this as lost. None of this is worth anything compared to him. So what we do is we end up becoming more like Esau where we're saying, okay, what I've been giving isn't worth what I need. Paul's saying the exact opposite. What I've currently been giving what he's given me is worth way more than anything that I currently need. So um, anybody ever heard of the word devaluation? Maybe there's some economists in the room. Countries will do this thing where they'll devalue their money. It's like an economic tactic against someone else. They'll devalue on purpose. Simply, simply means to to reduce the value of, of what you currently have. It's a devaluation. It, it means it's worthless, the reduction or underestimation of the worth or importance of something. We're going to devalue it. Esau does this, but it, it happens in a, in a little bit of a tricky way. Um, anybody... Uh, Anybody old enough here to, to own a muscle car in the 60s? Anybody? There's a few of you. Anybody wish they still had that car? Raise your hand. Yeah? Like, ooh, I wish I had that. Well, I, I, you know, I grew up in the 80s and was in high school in the 90s, and, and uh, I had an Escort for my first car. <laughs> it was a stunner. Yeah. Escort L. That did not stand for luxury. That standed for the lowest model. Crank up windows, four speed. They didn't even have five speeds, four speed. Little, um, you know, all the cars I've owned, that's one that I don't wish I still had. It's crazy. The future value of that thing was, was obviously less than what it was then. Didn't go up in value. But how many of you, but I have had cars. I had a 77 Ford uh, F-150 that I wish I still had. I had, a, I had an old car when Beth and I first got married. I wish I still had. A um, couple things I, like, I wish I still had a few. Anybody else in the room wish they still had a few things they used to have? You wish you did. You wish you did. You know what I realized? You know what I realized? that I was a poor judge of the future value of some of the things that I owned. Mm. I was a poor judge of the future value of some of the things that I owned. 
because um, some of the things I used to have are worth more now than what I paid for them back then. It's crazy, isn't it? But when you own it back then, the problem is in your circumstance, you, the thing that you own ends up requiring maintenance. Yeah, like if you owned a vehicle in the 60s, you had to do maintenance to it. Amen? You had to maintenance that thing. You had to adjust the carburetor and the points, and you had to do all this stuff to it to keep it running. And, and it was complicated. You got maintenance. And then, in the, and then they came out with fuel injection, and you went, what do I want this piece of junk for? And, and warranties. Then what we figured out was, if you're in a muscle car in the 60s, and it was in great shape today, in 2022, that it would be worth more than most cars with warranties today. Amen? That's a fascinating take because when we get rid of those vehicles, when we get rid of those things back then, it's hard to assess the future value of them. Because, by the way, in those cultures, everybody's getting rid of them. You know what? There was nobody around me keeping escort L's. Nobody. Nobody was looking at me going, Chris, you're going to regret getting rid of that car one day. I'm telling you, that car's got nowhere to go but up. They were right about that, but. The devaluation of what we currently have causes us to trade for things that won't be worth anything later. Esau had a birthright. Esau, by definition of being firstborn in his family, was given this birthright, this honor, this, this, this lineage that would continue down through him. He was, it was given to him, and, and, and it was a blessing. He would get double and be responsible for the family. He would, be the, he would end up being the patriarch. He would be, end up being the man. It would come down through him. And it was a blessing and an honor to have this. But the value of it would not be seen until the future. It wouldn't be seen until far later down in the road, down the road. It wouldn't be known to him the value of it. So now he's comparing something. He's tired, he's weak, he's exhausted, and now he's comparing his current need, which is frivolous. A bowl of soup. With something that won't be valuable until until far later down the road. Any of you remember the Nintendo when it first came out? Anybody remember that? Yeah, it was crazy, wasn't it? Wow. It was crazy. Somebody looked up the other day, uh, a couple days ago, talking about the original, oh, it was last night, wasn't it? The original Duck Hunt. Anybody remember that? Ease up now. It's just a video game. <laughs> wow. Okay, me and my brother got that. I was around 16 years old. And I remember us getting a Nintendo for the first time. Now, I had a black and white TV to play it on. So when the school is yours. Uh, I was a 13-inch black and white TV. And we gave up on that thing in about, a, about six months. And we ended up selling it. It was a Nintendo. It was whatever. But I remember the day we got it. We were floored. We couldn't believe it. We were poor. We were like... We just got a Nintendo. Are you kidding me? So took it 
took it in the room, had a 13-inch black and white TV my great-granddad gave me, and we hooked it up to that thing. We played baseball and duck hunt. That was 30-some years ago. We had some kids at our house last night. One of them looked up an original duck hunt game on eBay, sealed in the wrapper, never touched, and they were asking $30,000 for it. And I thought, I sold that thing at a yard sale for 10 bucks. <laughs> Are you kidding me? What did I trade that for? What did I give it away for? But the truth of the matter is my duck hunt game, we had used it. And you remember, some, on, some of you were kids back then, you remember you used to have to pull it out, blow in it, bang it on something, blow in it, bang it on something, then stick it in there, and then hit the player, and then pull out, and then and you're like, why don't this work? Because at the moment, it required maintenance. Because in the moment, it required me to work on it. Because in the moment, you had to adjust the carburetor, and you had to... You had to just the points and you had to, and it was finicky and you had to mess with it. And it just didn't, it just had lost its shine. It just had lost its appeal. It just had became difficult and it, and it didn't make any sense to keep it anymore. And then 30 years later, you get online, you're like, are you kidding me? I gave that thing away. The trouble is, Esau devalued his future, not his, not his present circumstance. He devalued his future. And that's one of the most dangerous things we could ever do. He said, what I need right now is way more important than what I could be later on. What I need right now, I need food right now. He said, what good is later on going to do me if I can't get a meal? So he despised it. I venture to say some of you have devalued something in your life right now that could be worth, could be priceless 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. It's become devalued in your mind because of your immediate circumstance. It's a lot of work and it's hard and it hurts and it's tiring. And at the end of the day, you're exhausted and you don't know what to do and, you, and, you're, and you're getting ready to make a decision when you're just worn out. And you're going, this, this can't be worth anything later on. Truth of the matter is, Esau was giving up his future. His descendants would be called the Edomites, and they were, they were lifelong enemies of Israel, coming out of the same household as Jacob. Esau was giving up his future. We're trading nonstop. We're trading. We're devaluing our futures for what we currently need over and over and over again. He said, I'm about to die. What good is a birthright to me? Remember this, Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. He said, listen, don't ever trade what God gave you for, for some difficulty now. Don't ever trade what God promised you for some, for some discomfort now. Don't trade it. He writes to the, in 2 Corinthians, he writes to them as well. It says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He says, I know what you're doing right now is comparing, 
But trust me, if you trade your future for some, for some ease in your current reality, it's not going to be worth it. What he's promised us in the future is, worth, is way more valuable than whatever you're suffering through right now. Don't make the trade. Don't make the trade. So Esau comes in. Jacob says, give it, give it to me. I think it would benefit us. Anybody ever been to a museum? Anybody ever been? And you walked in and you're like, that's a nice painting. I don't know what it's about, but it's a nice painting. Do you realize that you did not get to assign the value to that painting? All you get to do is appreciate it. That's it. You don't assign the value. All you do is recognize the value. And you did that by paying, buying a ticket or whatever to get into the museum or making a trip to the museum. And you, and you, and you went in and looked at the painting. Therefore, you recognized the value of the painting. Somebody else has assigned a value to this and you recognize the value in it by you going there and looking at it. I think the church needs to do a better job of not assigning value, but recognizing it. That God puts something in you, not to get rid of cheap, not to get rid of just because you're tired. He puts something in you and he wants us to recognize what he put in us. He doesn't want us to assign the value. He's already done that. And he says, listen, I've given it to you. Now I want you to recognize what I've given to you and not trade it for for some need you have in the moment. It's easy to think about a couple things. In a culture where marriage is easy to get in and out of in a culture where all these things, it's, it's easy to trade something that looks like it needs maintenance or may need an overhaul for something that looks a little bit shinier. The trouble is, here's what I figured out. If I'm a bad maintenance man over here, what makes me think I'll be a better maintenance man over here? If I can't, if I can't maintain what I currently have, what makes me think that I'm going to be able to fix up something else? But the enemy tricks us into these ideas that, that what you, the difficulty you're currently going through will just go away if you trade it in for something else. But what we, realize, what we don't realize is we're actually giving away our future for something right now. We're giving it away. We're saying all that could be is not worth what feeling comfortable today is worth. I'm going to leave you with this. I think our culture is rampant with it and it's getting worse. It's getting worse. Everything, as far as we are concerned in our culture in America, when it becomes difficult, man, we trade that thing. We trade that thing. When, it become, when we devalue it, we just get rid of it. Just get rid of it. Throw it away. Get rid of it. I don't talk about elections very much, but I just thought about, I just thought about one of the main topics in our current election. You know, a couple months ago, Supreme Court voted to over, override Roe versus Wade. 
It threw the country into uproar. It threw the country in upheaval about the idea that abortion rights could go away. And I started thinking about that. I started thinking, we have become a country that will trade our future for a current circumstance. I'm not saying this circumstance is ideal or easy or beautiful. I'm not saying, I'm not glossing it over. I'm saying this is tough. This circumstance is not great. This circumstance seems like it's not going, this circumstance is difficult. But what we do when we abort babies is we say, this difficult circumstance is worth me getting rid of instead of, the, instead of knowing what the future of that child is worth. And as a culture, we're giving our opinion about it over and over again. In every election, we're giving an opinion. We're saying our current comfort is worth more than the future of a, of a child, than the future of a family. We're saying my current circumstance has to be this way and I'll trade it. And we're saying the future value of that thing will never be worth as much as my comfort today. We're doing it over and over again. We're doing it with everything. We're doing it with our marriages, our kids. We're doing it with with all the stuff that we have. We're saying my current comfort is worth way more than what this thing could turn into, than the value of it in the future. And you may be looking up at me right now going, Chris, you don't understand, and I may not but I'm begging you to take a step back and say, did I count the future costs of this thing? Did I count the future costs on me? Did I count the future costs on my family? Did I count the future costs on my kids? Because I know it may be uncomfortable right now. I know it may be difficult, but did I count the costs later on down the road? And Esau didn't. And he just traded. You remember I told you, stand your feet, I'm gonna leave you with this. Remember I told you, remember I told you at the beginning that sometimes people come to me in their worst circumstances. They call me, Chris, this person died or my marriage or da 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 da. And, and all, uh, people call me in their worst circumstances. You know what's most difficult for me? When the worst circumstance is a result of the trade they made. I did this back then, I thought it was a good decision, but now I realized. Now I realized. I traded it in back then for, to make, I thought I was gonna make it easier. I traded in back then, I thought it'd be the best thing to do. I traded in back then. I thought it would fix everything. I traded in back then. I thought he'd treat me better. I thought, I thought she'd be better. I thought, I thought all these things would be better. I, I just traded, I traded it because I just thought it would be better. And 10, 15 years down the road, you find out what it's worth. You're sitting there and you're looking at it. It's not any better. Esau, at the end of his life, had to realize I gave it all away for a bowl of soup. Gave it all away for a bowl of soup. And I don't know about you, but what God has for you in the future is worth more than you could ever dream. That's why Paul said, these present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. So whatever difficulty you're walking through right now, don't trade it. Don't trade it. Take a pause moment. Take a, get, get somebody else to speak into it. Don't trade it. Don't just give it away to be comfortable. Don't just give it away so you can, so you can have a little peace. Don't trade it. Don't be frivolous with it.
It has a, it has an, a priceless future. So, Father, we're going to pray like that this morning. Lord, whatever circumstances we're in, though they may be difficult, they may, re- may require overhaul, they may require tons of maintenance, they may require all kinds of work. But I pray that you give us a glimpse into what they could be worth. What it could be worth, Lord. Because you know the value all the way to the end. Give us a glimpse of what it could be worth. We thank you for it this morning. We thank you that you did that with us. You made us priceless, Lord. So we pray we'd see through your eyes in our current circumstance. Thank you for it. And we bless you today because of it. Jesus mighty name. Church, could you give him honor and praise today for his goodness to us? Could you thank him?